you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, we thank you for the word, your word that we just heard read. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word here and to learn from it. Uh, Father, I do ask that you might open our eyes, that we might behold something new, something wondrous in your word. I just pray that your spirit would be with us to uh, teach and apply this word. Lord, I ask that your spirit would enable me to serve the hearers well the proclamation of your gospel this morning. Lord, I pray that in all of this, we might have a fresh affection for Jesus Christ, your Son, and his salvation for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. It's a joy to worship with all of you this morning. I want to thank uh, Matt and the church leadership here for inviting me to come to open God's word and to proclaim the excellencies of the scriptures here. Uh, as Matt said, I, I think today is a little bit of a makeup, maybe from about a year ago. I was invited to come and preach at Matt's ordination service and ended up the end of that week uh, getting sick, being in bed for a couple of days. I felt really badly about that. The, the, I guess the result is that Matt ended up preaching his own ordination service, which he's the only uh, pastor I know to have ever done that. So I had half a mind to text him early this morning and say I wasn't feeling well. Hey, could you go this on your own? But I didn't want to presume on his grace a second time. Uh, but, but, you know, I, I share that even to say this. Uh, one of the things that I admire and I appreciate about him, he's just always at the ready uh, to preach God's word in season and out of say, season to proclaim the gospel. And I just uh, so appreciate that about you, brother, and, and our friendship that we've enjoyed over the years. Well, let's turn to our text this morning. We heard read from Mark chapter 12. I've titled the message this morning, We Are Stewards, Not Owners. We are stewards of our life, not owners of our life. I know that we'll be in Mark chapter 12 this morning. Jesus will be sharing some things here. He's going to be teaching a parable. But this is an age-old problem of our sinful nature. This is an age-old problem of humanity that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. If you remember when Satan first tempted Adam and Eve, the, the, the teeth of his temptation was to bring to Eve that if you ate of this fruit that God forbid, that you would be like God, knowing good and evil. And there was that temptation there to rise above the level of dependence upon our maker, dependence upon our ultimate authority, our creator God, and to position and put ourselves up as independent, small g, if you will, God. That has been the, the downfall of humanity ever since the Garden of Eden. We're going to encounter it here again as Jesus, in a way, this morning is going to summarize and a bit simplify the gospel all the way down to this very idea that there are those whose hearts are still in sin, whose hearts are still in darkness, that view their own lives to be in ownership, to be independent of God. Jesus is going to say there will be patience from the Lord, but in the end, those who bow the knee to Jesus Christ will be transformed. We will now see ourselves as stewards of all that God has given, all that God is, and Ourselves will be put under his authority. And so, thus the title this morning, we are stewards, not owners. That is probably one of the core things we must get right because it is one of the core things that has gone wrong in our fallenness. 
And so we'll be uh, getting into this in Mark chapter 12. I read uh, recently of a homeowner's uh, struggles every year that this homeowner would put out uh, a hummingbird feeder. And so he discussed and kind of described how this rhythm would go every year. He would uh, have the hummingbird feeder. He'd put the mixture of the liquid into it. He'd he'd, uh, kind of risk life and limb to climb up a tree and, and to hang this hummingbird feeder from the tree only to sit back and watch, as he said, year after year after year, it seemed as though one hummingbird would come and would commandeer that hummingbird feeder as his own. And half of his life and days and energy were spent scaring off and shooing away all of the other hummingbirds because that was his hummingbird feeder and he wanted ownership of it. You know, in many ways... Oftentimes, we as humans act like that hummingbird trying to take ownership over something that is not our own, trying to take ownership over our lives uh, that are not our own to own. We are not owners. We are stewards. I know there's many children in here uh, with us this morning. I I love that. I appreciate that. So maybe I can direct this a little bit children's way. There, There will come a day where you may receive that that golden item from your parents, a cell phone. And that cell phone might come from the parents, and and parents, if you've been here, you understand this. Of course, this has never happened in our house. I'm sure it's never happened in your house. It happens only in other people's houses, but the child might receive that cell phone. Even though there might be contracts, pages and pages long with signatures and fingerprints and everything else for that cell phone, that I won't use it in a wrong way, I won't be on it past 8 p.m. at night and all these rules and everything, there comes a point potentially in every child's life where they commandeer that cell phone. They treat it as owners. It is theirs. All rules be out the window. This is being mine and mine alone. And no longer are they stewards of that little machine, but they become owners. Of course, I'm sharing that about children. But as parents, we know. And as adults, we all know there are different ways and different positions in our own life where we treat our lives as though we are owners. It is my time, it is my money, it is my body, it is my resources, it is my, my, my. And may we hear the word of the Lord today. As you know, I was reading back through the, this passage of Scripture this past week. I, I know in, in years ago, just studying the Gospels, maybe in, in a fresh way, just wondering about the question, why did the Jewish leaders reject Jesus? He came unto his own, his own received him not. Why did the Jewish leaders who knew all of the prophecies, why did they reject Jesus, the Messiah that was sent to them? We're going to have that question answered in part today by this passage of Scripture. They rejected him because they were owners of their own lives. That, is, that was their desire. They did not get correct this idea of stewardship versus ownership. And so... This seems to be the spirit of our age today. This is the context of America and maybe the context of the world in which we live. We act like we are owners of borrowed lives. We're constantly bombarded with phrases like my rights, my truth, my preferences. Our human tendency is to declare ownership even though our lives are borrowed. We set ourselves up to be masters of our own domain Humans' default response is to dethrone God, to dethrone his rightful authority and ownership, and enthrone ourselves in a position of ownership. 
So in our text here this morning, Mark chapter 12, we, we have a situation where Jesus confronts Israel's leaders. He warns them. He's going to warn them of the seriousness of confusing the stewardship of our lives, uh, that we are not owners. We are but mere managers of all that God has given to us and done for us. They have confused this, and he warns them of the seriousness of confusing stewardship and ownership. This message isn't just for them back then. This message is for us as well. The situation might look a little bit differently in our own lives, but the heart issue is still the same. We all struggle with wanting to own our own lives unto ourselves. Just a quick review before I get into Mark chapter 12 here. It's a continuation of Mark chapter 11. The two lead right into each other. So permit me, if I will, for just a moment to back up a little bit and look at last Sunday's content of Mark chapter 11. It's Holy Week. That is what is going on here. Mark chapter 11 begins with Jesus coming from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. This was an entire week-long thing. It was called Holy Week, and he comes in on Sunday evening. He enters the temple complex. He looks around, but because it was evening, he leaves, and he goes back where he was staying just outside of Jerusalem. That was Sunday of Holy Week. Monday, he walks into the temple grounds. He cleanses it of people doing business for profit. He shoes all of those things out. He declares that the temple would be called a house of prayer, not a house of commerce. This wasn't for buying and selling. It was to be a solemn, dedicated space unto the Lord. That evening, the Jewish ruling party, uh, the Sanhedrin made up of the three groups of people, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they come together and, and they take some time to collaborate. They don't understand this Jesus coming in. On the one hand, they may have asked a very valid question. They may have wondered a very valid question. By what authority are you doing the things that you're doing? But they were not at the position to want the truth of that at all. They were trying to trap Jesus. And so they come out of that meeting on Monday evening after Jesus had taught with authority, after he had turned the money changers over, as he had driven people out of the temple. They're going to come Tuesday with this kind of trapping question in hand to come and say, by what authority do you do this? Jesus comes and he says, I'll answer you if you answer me a question as well. Jesus wanted to know how serious they were at arriving at truth. What ended up happening and what was revealed as you took a look at this passage last Sunday, the end of chapter 11, the leaders were not interested in truth at all. Jesus asked them a question. They sidestep it. In fact, maybe they had a little bit of a collaboration. They were more concerned with how the crowds would respond. And so they deliberated wondering what will be the outcome of how we answer rather than will we answer truthfully. Do we want to arrive at truth? Or do we want the outcome to be in our favor? And they chose, we want the outcome to be in our favor. So Jesus says to them, then I'm not going to give you a direct answer to your question. The great thing is, as we now come to chapter 12, Jesus didn't leave it there. He didn't leave it alone with, I'm not going to answer you. He did not give them a direct answer, but he will now give them an indirect answer using a parable. He's going to use a story that is laid alongside a truth 
And so he gives them a direct answer. Often Jesus would use parables to veil some of his teachings. This one wasn't so, uh, uh, so veiled that they wouldn't get it because at the end of the story it says they perceive, the only thing the leaders do rightly in this passage, they perceive that Jesus was directing this teaching at them. That was true. That was absolutely right. But for now, Jesus, as we pick up in chapter 12, is going to teach them using a parable. So let's look again at Mark chapter 12 in verse 1. He began to speak to them in parables. Parable was a teaching a tool that Jesus often used. It just simply means to lay alongside. He was going to use a story that they could immediately connect with, a story that they could immediately relate to, and there would be a spiritual truth that would be laid alongside that story. So they could follow along, they could understand, it would be familiar and relatable scenario. So he begins this parable here again in verse 1. A man planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it, he dug a pit for the wine press, and he built a tower, and he leased it to the tenants and went into another country. This parable begins by holding up a landowner. Uh, he's an owner of property, he owns this parcel of land, and Jesus is going to carefully describe and emphasize all that this landowner has done to care for, to prep and to get ready this piece of land. We notice in these verses here that he plants the grapes. He plants this vineyard. It means he worked the soil. It means he invested his time and his resources and his money. Not only that, then he built a fence around this garden, but around this vineyard. He could have been a stack of stones. It could have been maybe a pile of brush with some thorns in it to keep predators out. But he was going to protect this vineyard from intruders. Not only that, he constructs the press. This would have been the ancient wine press where there would have been a flat part where the grapes would have been put, uh, placed upon. They would have stomped those grapes with their feet. And then underneath that, there would have been a basin that would catch all of the grape juice. And so this landowner goes through all of this trouble, goes through all of, uh, uh, of this resources and time and energy to do all of these things, and he builds a tower. Builds a tower so that he could watch from above, so that they could, again, look for maybe thieves trying to come and steal, or, or maybe uh, animals approaching that would try to eat uh, the, the vineyard. He does all of this. He builds the tower, takes painstaking efforts to do all of this. And then it says... He's going to turn all of this over to stewards, uh, to these tenant farmers. Jesus is deliberately emphasizing that the landowner created this environment. He created this domain at great expense, and then he leases it to these farmers. They are stewards. They are renters. They are not owners. This is a great setup for them. If we think about this, this was a turnkey operation. None of the efforts of their own went into this. They walk on to a ready-made business right there. It's a, it's a wonderful setup for them. The owner leaves, and he takes up business in another location. Now, just so we're clear, the owner's absence does not mean absence of authority. Uh, the owner of this land still had authority over the land. 
But here is the picture of the owner moving on to another country to do more business. And he leaves these tenant farmers there to manage what he has given to them. We look here at verse 2 as we continue on in the story. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So in due time, the crop became ready. Again, the tenant farmers probably did nothing here. It was just sunshine and rain. God provided all of these things. But in due time, the crop was ready. The owner sends a, a, a worker, a messenger to them to collect rent from the crop. All of this makes reasonable sense. All of this is, is very common, and it would be a common arrangement that the hearers could have listened to and understood immediately. So long as the tenants remember their position. There's nothing really all that interesting in this story so far. There's an owner, manager. They give some of the proceeds of the crop back as rent, and all is well. Ah, but all is not well in this story because the tenants forget their position and who they are. We read on in verse 3. After this delegate, after this servant came to get from them some of the fruit, they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. This is where the story goes sideways. Everything up to this point, very normal, very situational, very understandable. Now it begins to go sideways. Instead of acting as stewards, the tenant farmers band together. They declare themselves owners of the property. They take control. They commandeer the property. They posture themselves not as renters, but as owners. They beat this messenger, and literally this means they punched him. And they sent him away with nothing. This was intended to be a message back to the owner. We don't want you meddling. This is ours now. That he has no right or claim over them. This, this is astounding. This, this would have been a shock to the listeners when Jesus told this. Why would those servants, why would those farmers not uh, be underneath and willingly bring themselves under the owner and his wishes. We read on to verse 4 and 5. It gets worse. Again, he sent to them another servant. They struck him on the head, and they treated him shamefully. And he sent yet another, and they killed him, so that with many others, some they beat and some they killed. They repeated this obstinate ownership declaration over and over. Each reminder, each warning, they ignored it. Their violence escalated every time. They grew more and more angry. They grew more and more empowered. More and more they wanted to send a message to the owner to leave us alone. This is our jurisdiction. This is our domain. And you can, you can almost imagine the original hearers here shaking their heads as Jesus is giving this parable. What is going on? Who would do this? Can we not say at least here the patience of the owner was on full display, that he would continue to send delegate after delegate, servant after servant to this vineyard. Verse 6, the story reaches a new level. 
where we're told that the owner still had one other, a beloved son. Maybe we would stop there just for a moment and say, don't do it. Do you see what's happened? Don't send the son. Look at what they've done to all of the previous messengers. But we're told here in verse 6, finally he sent that son. He sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. May not have respected these messengers. They will respect my son. This owner decides to send this last one, this last delegate. It's his beloved son. That's almost surely a reference to the fact that this would have been the firstborn son. The owner seems confident that the stubbornness and the hardness of heart would be melted by this gesture. Maybe it wouldn't have worked for the rest, but he's confident that this gesture would surely melt their hard heart. Surely the farmers would acknowledge true ownership. They would acknowledge their own position at this point. But we read on in verses 7 to 8 to be thoroughly disappointed at the spirit of the human soul. Verse 7, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and they killed him. They threw him out of the vineyard. They do not take this as a gesture They do not take this as heartwarming, uh, uh, looking within to see what they have done, repenting of all of their former actions, but instead they escalate this. Their greed and their pride is too dug into their souls. They do not consider their actions. Instead, they double down on this desire to have ownership and control over their own lives, over their own domain. They have an unquenchable thirst for independence from the owner. They won't accept the authority of the owner, and they won't accept the authority of his son. And before we go any further, as we wrap up these last few verses here, can we just consider a question for a moment? So we think about this. It should be head-scratching. It should be a little bit confusing to us to, to look back and say, what, what is going on here? But can we at least consider this question What action so far has been more unbelievable, has been more shocking? Do we gasp at the evil behavior of the farmers and the stewards? Or is it even more shocking and more unbelievable, the long-suffering and the patience of the landowner who continued to put his message forward and forward and forward? even though it was met with such hardness of heart. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters, that God would put forward and put forward and put forward in his patience and long-suffering towards sinful humanity, his overture of forgiveness. We read on to verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus doesn't just leave this open-ended. He doesn't just give the story and then say, figure it out for yourselves. He drives the nail home. He says, what would the owner of the vineyard do? 
Having finished the parable, Jesus now asks this question, what is the righteous and reasonable response of this landowner having been treated in such a way? He said, he will come, he will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. They've killed his messengers. They've killed his son. They've dismissed his authority. He will remove them. He will destroy them. He will give to others who understand their role as stewards, as renters, as borrowers. Now we see in verses 10 and 11, Jesus goes on with some teaching. He's going to connect something here. We'll see in just a moment, verse 10. He said, have you not read this scripture? And this is out of Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus ends his teaching now with a subtle or not so subtle reference to himself. If you remember back a few moments ago, I said that in Mark chapter 11, it began Holy Week where Jesus was marching into Jerusalem. The people were shouting, Hosanna. They were specifically quoting Psalm 118 on Sunday when he entered. Jesus here in Mark chapter 12 finishes Psalm 118 with this statement with this verse. This also comes from Psalm 118, and he finishes it. He finishes that prophetic psalm by declaring, the one who the builders, the one who these tenant farmers, the one who these Jewish leaders rejected, will become the very one upon whom God builds his kingdom. The rejection of Jesus has been prophesied The Jewish leaders have thrown him out just as he was crucified outside of the city. That was a sign of disrespect to move it out of their jurisdiction. You can't even take care of that here. We want you gone and out of our city. The rejection of Jesus has been been prophesied. They had declared and positioned themselves as owners, as the authority of all of this. But... Friends, brothers and sisters, God will never be dismissed. They may have dismissed his messengers. They may have dismissed his son, but God will never, ever be dismissed. He overcomes the evil of these Jewish leaders. He overcomes the evil of mankind by the glory of his salvation through Jesus Christ His plan, this verse says, is marvelous to behold. His plan is perfect and it is marvelous to behold. What a wonderful word used there. Marvelous plan that God would take what was rejected by sinful man and use it as the very foothold to build his kingdom. We finish at verse 12. This parable now, and parable's over. Jesus has done his teaching. And as I mentioned, this is the only thing that the tenant farmers get right. Look with me as we look at this last verse. They were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people. They perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. Well, this parable and its lesson did not go over their heads. They understood it. They knew what was being spoken. Instead of taking inventory of their actions, instead of evaluating their hearts, the Jewish leaders dug deeper into their anger. 
They refuse to acknowledge God as their owner. They refuse to acknowledge themselves as stewards. Instead of acknowledging the truth and humbly repenting, they chose to ignore and exit the conversation. They exited stage left. Well, what are we to do with all of this? What are we to do with this teaching of Jesus here this morning? On the one hand, this parable makes it very clear why the Jewish leadership rejected Jesus. If you ever wondered that question, this was Israel's history. God sent messenger after messenger that they beat, sent away, many killed. It was because their greed and their pride did not want to recognize God's authority as owner and themselves as steward. This is a summary of Israel's history, their leadership and their history. But we know from James chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. So that is, on the one hand, it's very clear what Jesus was teaching. On the other hand, this parable is not just for Jewish leadership. It wasn't just for them in that time and those people who, in those positions. It is for all of us because it exposes a root of sin that lives in each of us. That root being that we want to be owners of our own domain. We want control of our own lives. We want everything from God. We just don't want God would be the battle cry of the human soul. We'll take it all from him. We just don't want him. So this causes us to deny God as creator and maker and sovereign over us. It causes us to elevate ourselves as owners. It causes us to kill the warnings of God that come to us. It causes us to ignore and avoid the truth rather than face it. But in the midst of all of this jockeying for ownership and questioning who is in control, we have in here the marvelous plan of salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was despised. He was rejected. He was murdered. He was thrown out of the city. But God raised up Jesus to be our Savior, to be the building block of his kingdom. In our text this morning, Jesus simplifies the gospel right here in these verses. He simplifies this for us. He's saying our natural sinful human way wants independence from God. God's patience is long-suffering, but it will not last forever. His righteousness will come to those who continue to re reject Jesus Christ. His plan of salvation and transformation is through a crucified Savior, and all who trust in Jesus Christ are graciously transformed. You say, well, well, what does it look like to be transformed when God does a heart work on a person so that they, they, they acknowledge that he is the owner and they are the stewards? You say, we look no further than the Apostle Paul. Do you remember one whose heart was transformed by God to put him in his rightful position as steward, not owner? The Apostle Paul said this in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Is that not proper positioning? He said, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God 
who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the transformation of the gospel that puts us under God in glad submission and in glad worship to him. Jesus Christ does that work within us. Friend, I wonder where you are today. Maybe you're here today, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You're still ignoring the messages from God that are being sent to you. Mark it down. God is patient, but he will not be patient forever. If you are still under his patience, today is the day of salvation. Repent, turn from your sin, acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Savior, and be put in right relationship with God. Christian, a question for you today, is the gospel still marvelous to you? Do we still marvel and wonder at the gospel? Let the gospel continue to do its work. We see the glories of God in the face of Jesus Christ and his plan of salvation. And as it works in us, might it continue to make us glad and willing stewards. Stewards of our time. Stewards of our bodies. Stewards of our resources. Stewards of our life. We don't just want everything from God. We want all of God. He puts our hearts in rightful position as stewards through Jesus Christ. Let me close our time in prayer this morning. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word, the simplicity of it, the clarity of it. Father, I ask that you would infuse us with the power of it that we, all the way back from the beginning of time, we have independence and ownership on our minds, but for Christ. I pray that, Lord, if there be any here today that don't know him, that they would surrender their hearts to him today. Lord, as Christians, might we have a new affection for this Jesus, this Savior, who puts us in right position and allows us to be glad stewards of all that you are all that you've given to us. Lord, may you press this truth in our hearts this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.